1: So oh, there's always more to talk about. Uh, there are two handouts back there, and Eric asked, which, which one are we doing tonight? And the answer is both. That's a joke, if you know. you know. It's true, but it's a joke. So we'll just get as far as we can in these two handouts. A lot of the pages on the second one are just going to be reference only, so that you'll have uh, something to refer to in terms of your own per, uh, personal prayer life. So, you know, we have two purposes this evening, and one is to look at Great prayer warriors um, in the past. I'll just touch lightly on the biblical characters um, because those stories will be familiar to you. Uh, but I just want to read some quotes from, from some people that give us a good display of faithfulness in prayer. My desire is not in any way to intimidate you or to discourage you. It can have that effect, you know, when you look at people that pray for two or three hours at a time or whatever and you think well listen I can't carry their shoes and what's the point and you can get discouraged but don't let that happen to your hearts uh, instead let's just read these kinds of testimonies and be encouraged and then I want to talk about some practical aspects of the prayer life um, and just give you some insights that I've gleaned from other teachers on prayer that have been encouraging to me so let's go ahead and pray and we'll begin Father thank you for this evening we're grateful for it thank you for these brothers and sisters uh, that have come have assembled here tonight Uh, Father, make us better, uh, more faithful prayer warriors for your glory. Lord, give us a sense of your kindness to us in prayer, a sense of the privilege of it, Um, a a greater sense of those blessings that we could be having if we trusted you for more things in prayer and sought your face more in prayer. There is no greater blessing than you yourself, that you are the reward of a faithful prayer life, Lord. Nothing uh, even compares with that. I pray that we'd have a greater sense of that, um, intimacy with you. But Lord, also that there are many things that should be done for the building of your kingdom, good works done either by us or by others, and that prayer is foundational to those good works, that we can pray for things you want us to do and we can pray for things you want others to do, and we can be involved in that uh, ministry. So I pray that you give us a strengthened uh, commitment, renew our commitment to the life of prayer. And uh, be with me and aid me in my weakness. Help me to say things that would be helpful to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, we've got two handouts. One, uh, we began last week. the examples of prayer uh, with the extended story there, prayer warriors in action. Uh, we already covered uh, Abraham's example of perseverance over Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's just trace out some of these others. I'll just speak briefly about these biblical characters and just say a couple of things about each of them. And there are so many. It would just be beneficial to just trace out some great moments, biblical moments in prayer. You know, Hezekiah spreading out the king of Assyria's letter demanding his surrender and how he spreads it out before God and just goes to God in helpless prayer. Or Jehoshaphat really doing the same thing, in effect saying, we are helpless against this mighty horde. What can we do against such an army as this? Uh, Pleading desperation and God motivated basically saying, you don't need to do anything, just go out and watch what I'm going to do, you know, and get the, the... the, the choir to lead the way and just sing praise songs and go out and see what I'll do. So there's just so many great, great moments in prayer. But uh, there's uh, Jacob uh, that we uh, have as an example here before us. And you know the story how Jacob was led by the Lord to um, go back to the promised land, back to the uh, land that had been promised to Abraham and, and to Isaac. And so he brought back his family, his wives, his children, all of the flocks and herds that God had given him And he went back and he heard that his brother Esau uh, wanted to have a little reunion. Esau was coming with himself and 600 of his closest uh, friends, armed men on on horseback, which is about the greeting that he expected from Esau. Um, And he spent a very, very tough night in prayer, as you remember, and how he sent over uh, across the uh, Jabbok stream there all of his family, and he was left alone on the other side. And there he wrestled with an angel till daybreak. And you remember what happens, how the angel says, let me go. And, uh, you know, he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And uh, how the angel touched Jacob's hip and put it out of, out of its socket and uh, how he limped the rest of his life. And uh, it was really a picture of desperation. You know, you get to a certain place in your life where you're desperate. You're in over your head. You're facing something that you can't face. And um, that is such an important time, those kinds of experiences. You know, in, in Abraham's case, he's interceding for others who are about to face destruction, really, and he's pleading for them on their behalf. Here, Jacob is pleading for himself and for his family because he thinks they're about to be slaughtered. And who knows, but maybe they would have been. I don't know. But uh, Jacob got his name Israel that night. He wrestles or struggles with God. And it's an amazing thing how God allows himself in some mysterious way to be overcome by us in prayer. How God allows himself in some human kind of understanding to be mastered by us. He allows himself to lose in the, in the wrestling battle. And we know that it's deeper than that. He's not losing. God has foreseen all things and has some in, in some mysterious way included our wrestling, included our intercessory prayer life uh, in his sovereign plan, but he wants us involved. And so I guess the challenge for me is, do I pray with that level of, of intensity? I don't want to use the language of desperation so, so much because that implies you have no hope, but desperation at the human level. If God doesn't help me, I'm lost. You know, God, if you don't intercede and and bless and help and protect my family, we're going to get wiped out. And I, I think God actually does bring you to that, doesn't he? Doesn't he bring you to the end of your resources? when at last you trust in him and say, there's nothing else I can do but ask that you please protect and bless my family. So that's a picture of Jacob. Then there's Moses, of course, who's interceding for the people of God up on the mountain after the golden calf. And uh, God in, in effect says, let me alone so I can destroy them. <laughs> you know, you remember that? And uh, it's just an incredible encounter there. The very thing that the apostle Paul quotes in in uh, Romans 9 when he talks about God's sovereign plan and choosing some for the privilege of seeing His face. The privilege of being in the very presence of God. It's a great privilege. None of us deserves it. And concerning that, that privilege of seeing God's glory, of seeing His face... He uses this language, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So there's this encounter with God. But there's also some business to be done as well as you, as you understand. God, it seems, is ready to destroy Israel because of the golden calf. We should not underestimate the greatness of this sin. It took me a long time, I think, to really understand what had happened at Sinai. But what had happened at Sinai is that God spoke the Ten Commandments in the hearing of all the people. And then Moses got a written copy of what God had said. That's the way I put it all together. So they'd already heard what God had said. The voice of God speaking out of a cloud, out of a glory cloud that had come to settle on the mountain. How God gave all of these trappings of power and of greatness and grandeur and fear, really, on this mountain. And how God, out of all of that, spoke in this awesome and terrifying voice. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And he always says this. And the people are trembling with fear and they beg Moses that they not have to hear the voice of God any longer. You remember all that. And after such a short time of actually hearing the voice of God and saying, what kind of people can actually hear the voice of God and live? But we are among those that have heard the voice of God speaking to us. And now we we live, we survive. But please, let's not... Do it anymore. If you would just go and speak to God and then tell us what He says, and remember how God commended them in the book of Deuteronomy, saying, What they've said is good. I wish they would always fear me like that and hold. But they didn't. In such a short time, they threw away their glory, exchanged their glory for an image of a bull that eats grass, and God, in effect, then saying to Moses, Now let me alone so I can kill them. All of them. And uh, it's just an incredible thing. Now, you know very well. If you look at it, that that was not something God was going to do. Uh, Very much like with Abraham and Isaac, he was testing Moses really at that point. How do we know? Well, it really has to do with the prophetic blessings that Jacob had placed on the 12 tribes and how Jacob as a patriarch spoke prophetic blessings over each of those tribes by name. And one of them was the tribe of Judah and how uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah would come, the scepter would come to this descendant of Judah. You know, uh, the scepter will not depart from Judah until the one to whom it it belongs comes. It's clearly a prophecy of Christ, descended from Judah. Well, he, he, Judah, would have been wiped out completely. God wasn't going to do that. Jacob had spoken this prophetic word. And so when he says, now let me alone so I can wipe them out, he's really just testing... Moses, but Moses intercedes on behalf not just of Judah, but all of the people of God, intercedes with them, and they survive. Yes, Susan?
0: This question may actually be more about God's justice than about prayer, Mm -hmm.
1: but i God says, okay, i have pardoned them. And on what basis was Moses, a human, able to, to ask God to pardon them, and God pardons them? And what was really going on there? You know, it's a great question. I, I think we have to say the way that Moses intercedes on behalf of his people, it seems to be the basis is the character of God, the reputation of God, the name of God. We can't imagine that Moses understood all that we now understand of redemptive history, the death of Christ and his resurrection, but he must have had some understanding of that. So if we ask from God's point of view on what basis he actually did forgive, it can only be the finished work of Christ on the cross. It just hadn't happened yet. But it's on that basis that God forgives any sin that's ever been forgiven, only by the blood of Jesus. There's no other basis. All right. Uh, What did Moses understand of that? Not, not, everything we do all right, but he understood a lot I think and so he would plead on the basis of the character and intentions and purposes and and promises of God please don't wipe out this people and it wasn't just one time you know that many times he has to pray for the Jews again and again you know how he gets weary of that and says you know do I have to keep carrying them like some nursing infant some squalling child into the promised land you know did I give birth to these people you know do I have to keep doing this and and they're just so tedious and they get the same name that uh, Jacob got, Israel. They struggled with God. They wrestled with God and gave him a hard time. So and that's a good question. And bottom line is Moses is a beautiful pattern of intercession based on the character and the, and the nature and purposes of God. And then fourthly, we look at Daniel. Uh, and again, Daniel chapter 9 is just a beautiful example of prayer. And in Daniel 9, if you want to study it, it's just incredible. That's where Daniel is in exile in the promised land. And he uh, receives a scroll uh, from uh, Jeremiah of the predictions and prophecies that Jeremiah the prophet had made concerning the restoration of the Jews after the exile to Babylon. And how, how Jeremiah prophesied very plainly that they would be there 70 years and that uh, Israel would serve Nebuchadnezzar, his son and his grandson. And then they would be returning to the promised land that God would raise up someone. And Isaiah had already told us his name. His name, Isaiah 45, would be Cyrus. And so through Cyrus, the people would be restored. But uh, Isaiah isn't mentioned in um, Daniel, but Jeremiah is. And how in, Jer- in Daniel chapter 9, he understood from the scroll of uh, Jeremiah how the exile would last seven years. So he turned to the Lord God, with fasting and prayer with intensity and he confesses his the sins of his own people and he includes himself very much in that. It's an incredible prayer and how he is pouring out confession and humility and brokenness. But what he's asking God to do is keep his promise. That's what he's doing. He said, now please consider your promises and consider uh, Jerusalem and consider this city And please rebuild the city so that your name may be held in honor and that you may keep your promise. That's the very thing he's... You know how in in Daniel chapter 6, three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed toward the city of Jerusalem. Remembering, I think, that God had promised someday to restore that city. And how it's so incredible what God does with Daniel's prayer... In Daniel chapter 9, he answers and gives that whole abomination of desolation and 70 weeks answer and all of this, this just incredible vision of the rest of redemptive history that very few people have of the number of weeks, that whole weeks of Daniel and how uh, God is going to atone for the sin of the land uh, through uh, a sacrifice, really. Uh, It's really just an incredible picture of Jesus. And how he tells them all of this because in effect he's saying, you know, I just want to lift your horizon a bit. You're praying for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Let me tell you the truth. It's going to be destroyed again after it's rebuilt. <laughs> Just so you know, all right? But that's not the end of it. The end is that, that the Messiah is going to come and build a kingdom that will last forever. So Daniel's vision is much further than any of the prophets, except maybe Isaiah in the whole Old Testament. He's given this in answer to prayer. What is that for us? I think what it is is praying redemptive history. We should not pray that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and the people restored to the city. We're beyond that. We're past that. We're further along in redemptive history than that. We don't need to do what Daniel did. What should we be praying for? Well, Whatever's going on now and what's next in redemptive history? What is it? The salvation of the peoples and tribes and languages of the world. That's what he's doing now. That's what he's promised. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We should be just like Daniel, but just praying for that you know, and seeking God and brokenness and humility and fasting and prayer for the advance of the kingdom of God until the second coming of Christ. So we should be like Daniel in that regard. These are just four examples. You can think of many other examples, cetera. Now what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you some examples from church history as well. Because, you know, of course, the story doesn't end with the book of Acts. You know, there are uh, great heroes, men and women, who are faithful in prayer and who can give us examples. And again, my desire here is not to intimidate you or to be, you know, give you this daunting example of, an, of you know, Augustine or Luther or Calvin or David Brainerd or any of these greats so that you can say, what is the use? I could never be like them. But rather that you just read their words and you see, at least in some of these examples, just how much humility they had. You know, They would say, in effect, if we ever said something like that, you don't know who I am. I'm a sinner. But they were great in prayer, and uh, I think we can learn from them. So let's look at some of these, like Augustine. I, if you read Confessions, I would really urge you to do that. Uh, there's a lot of things you get out of the Confessions, but one of the things I get is just the incredible intimacy he had with God, the love relationship. There's, it's, it's really quite remarkable. The language is, is intense. And very personal. Uh, we're listening into his prayer life. You know how it's written. It's written in second person. You know, it's, it's, he's speaking to God directly. Saying, then you did this and you taught me that. And oh, Lord, you are this and that for me. This kind of thing. It's a direct address. It's like we're overhearing his prayers as he talks to God. Kind of like we're standing in the corner of the room while he prays. And uh, it's really amazing. But listen to this kind of language. How shall I call upon my God, my God and my Lord, when by the very act of calling upon him, I would be calling him into myself. Is there any place within me into which my God might come? How should the God who made heaven and earth come into me? Is there any room in me for you, Lord my God? Even heaven and earth, which you have made and in which you have made me, can they, can even they contain you? Since nothing that exists would exist without you, does it follow that whatever exists does in some way contain you? Alas, for me, through your own merciful dealings with me, O Lord, my God, tell me what you are to me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Say it so that I can hear it. My heart is listening, Lord. Open the doors, the ears, sorry, the ears of my heart and say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let me run toward this voice and seize hold of you. Do not hide your face from me. Let me die so that I may see it, for not to see it would be death to me indeed." Or in another section he said this, "'Let me know thee, O my knower. Let me know thee even as I am known, O strength of my soul. Enter it and prepare it for thyself, that thou mayest have and hold it without spot or blemish. This is my hope, and therefore I have spoken, and in this hope I rejoice whenever I rejoice aright. But as for the other things of this life, they deserve our lamentations less, the more we lament them. And some should be lamented all the more, the less men care for them. For see, thou desirest truth, and he who does the truth comes to the light. This is what I wish to do through confession in my heart before thee, and in my writings before many witnesses." Just you, just read that kind of stuff, and you say, "I want that kind of intimacy with God." I'm inviting you, Lord, into my heart. But is my heart ready for you to dwell in my midst? I think it's quite powerful. Or about Martin Luther. Martin Luther was uh, faithful in praying for the word's power. I think there's a lot of aspects to Luther's prayer life. But uh, consider his transition. All right, he prayed in the monastic kind of works orientation of medieval Catholicism, probably in a rote system of of prayer at certain hours as as a work that you would do, like, you know, in that Luther movie, like him down on his hands and knees scrubbing the floor. You know, I see him praying like that, (laughs) you know, just another thing you do. Um, I think as he struggled with his own soul's sin and as he did so much confession to his father confessor, I think he grew estranged from this vision of God, the medieval Catholic God that, you know, was to be dreaded and feared like a king of kings or an emperor of emperors would someone uh, who would be hold you in terror. And you would you would uh, be afraid of what he could do, namely send you to hell. But eventually he came to understand justification by faith and he relied on God more in prayer. He realized that his ministry and the word would amount to nothing if God didn't bless it. So this is just an aspect of his life. He was a man of the word and faithful in preaching and in teaching it. But he was also very clear in saying that if the Lord didn't bless his preaching, nothing would come of it. So this is something of interest to me as a pastor, but we can all gain something from it. He said this, Dear Lord God, I want to preach so that you are glorified. I want to speak of you, praise you, praise your name, although I probably cannot make it turn out well. Won't you make it turn out well? (laughs) I just love that. It's just so childlike. And uh, I, I know what that means. It's like, you know, I've been here for almost 11 years. Here's another sermon. It probably won't turn out well unless you do something with it. Would you make it turn out well, please? You know I, I just i think there's just something very plain about that and humble this is what he said also that the holy scriptures cannot be penetrated by study and talent is most certain therefore your first duty speaking to other pastors uh, students who are going to be pastors, your first duty then is to begin to pray and to pray to this effect that if it please god to accomplish something for his glory not for yours or any other person's he very graciously grant you a true understanding of his words For no master of the divine words exists except the author of these words. And he says, they shall all be taught by God. Very powerful statement there. You must therefore completely despair of your own industry and ability and rely solely on the inspiration of the Spirit. You should completely despair of your own sense and reason, for by these you will not attain the goal. Rather, kneel down in your private little room And with sincere humility and earnestness, pray God through his dear son, graciously grant to grant you his Holy Spirit to enlighten and guide you and give you understanding. What he's getting at, he's got one scripture verse. They will all be taught by God from John 6. He said, all right, that's what needs to happen. Do it through me, your humble servant. And that's even back in the time of preparation of the sermon. So in your study and all that, that's what you want. You want God to teach the people. So get me out of the way. And the only way that can happen is if you illuminate the word. Teach me some things. What do you want? I do this frequently. I just kneel down and I say, Lord, what do you want to say to First Baptist Church based on these scriptures? Is there something you want to say? Because you know how many different sermons can be written on these texts? So many, more than you can count. If you have any sense of church history, you realize how many great sermons have already been written by greater men than me on these texts, but that's not the point. The point is, what, do, what does this church need to hear now? You know, and so only God can teach. And so he just takes that one concept, they will all be taught by God, and he lifts that up to God in prayer. He says, uh, pray that kind of thing. So he lived a life saturated with prayer. He says this, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. I have so much business, this is a very famous statement, I have so much business I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. You know, that's a strange statement and many have dealt with that before, but I think it makes sense. You know, it's that statement, you know, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. I don't want to waste my day. And the busier I am, the more I need God's help. Well, let me tell you something. I struggle with that concept. I have to be honest. I don't know that I live up to Luther's, you know, example here. The busier I am, the more I pray. Can I really stand there and say that? Can any of you? You know, maybe you can. I don't know, but I understand it. Doctrinally, it makes sense to me, but oh, how hard is it to actually do? Our tendency is the busier I am, the less I pray. Doesn't that make sense? I just don't have time for it. You know, it was a busy day. Well, you know what you're doing. I know I could reason myself out of it, but doesn't make it any easier the next busy day to spend more time in prayer. But you're really exalting your own efforts over God's. You're really saying what I do is more important than what God would do. And that's, that's a dangerous statement, but it just takes a lot of faith to get out of that pragmatic pit and just say, you know, I need your help. Yes, Susan. Has he written anything, or did he write anything about his mode of prayer? Like George Mueller did. George Mueller, as he taught us, gave us insight into how he pray. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, my first is wow, two hours, three. Right. I guess he must have been alternate. With can, I, can I answer you honestly, Maybe. Luther is one of the hardest figures in church history to get hold of because his works are disorganized compared to Calvin. You want to ask, what did Calvin do? Easy to answer. What did Luther do? Well, you have to read 80 volumes, and you'll find somewhere in there. <laughs> yes, go ahead. We've read a book that Luther wrote when his barber asked him how to pray. Okay, oh, yeah. It's, it's, a very, it's for a simple man. Good, good. So book, I know of that book, yeah. Oh, simple way, to pray. Simple way to pray. Yeah. 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 Okay, so that might be a good way to get hold of it. But I know this only because I taught a class on Luther at Southeastern, and uh, after the meticulous organization of John Calvin, I just got frustrated with this man. I mean, because he's brilliant and, and just a key figure from church history, but try to get hold of... You know, you can, you can ask any question you want of Calvin and you can get at what he did uh, because he's just so organized. The, the institutes are organized and his commentaries are organized. And if you want to ask a question, what did he believe about this or that or what approach toward tithing or what does he think? You can get at it because you go through the scriptures. It's always the scriptures that are going to get you there. So what scriptures would talk about that topic and you go over and read and there it is. And, uh, you can, that's how I wrote my dissertation. I know it plainly. That's, that was my methodology on Calvin's eschatology. It's just what passages talk about it and then see what he said about those passages. Don't try it with Luther. Because you'll read, he'll say a word or two about that passage and then off he goes. And where he goes, no one's going to know. But, uh, at any rate, it's all going to be good. Really good, but it's not going to be about that verse. <laughs> so, at any rate, you know, so. Um, Luther's final words. I think this is very, very, uh, fitting. And he says this, Wir sin alla bettler, hoc est verum." That's, those are his final words. One, one phrase in German and the other in Latin. What an interesting man he was. We are all beggars, he said in German. And then in Latin, this is true. So, powerful way to die. But what does that have to do with prayer? It has everything to do with prayer. You know, a beggar knows if he doesn't get something from someone he doesn't deserve, then he'll, he won't live even. And so, in effect, he's saying basically the first line of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he knew that. Then there's John Calvin. You know, for, in the interest of time, I'd just as soon skip him. Uh, I think he does great things. The things he's written are good, but I want to get to some others. So please read it. We don't have time to, ha- to do all the handouts I've given you tonight. And this is our last time in prayer, so sorry. Um, Boy, am I sorry. I cook all this food and I don't even get to serve it. But you guys take, take it home and read it and, and it may be beneficial to you. But uh, Calvin has some great comments on prayer. Um, David Brainerd uh, is a tremendous example of intensity and sacrifice and zeal. He was a missionary to the Indians um, around the time, definitely, of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he had an astonishing passion and commitment to prayer. And you get it from his journals. Um I probably, of any of the the figures that we we are reading about here in this handout, he'd be the one that might discourage you the most because you just think, I can't even carry this man's shoes in terms of his level of commitment to his life mission and to prayer itself. And he's so honest about his, you know, broken and and humility, but basically that's after having spent 14 hours in prayer, that kind of thing. And then at the end he just feels like he's the worst prayer warrior on earth, and he just, you know... John Piper says he's a little too melancholy for most of our taste, etc. But let me read some of what he says. Uh, this is just from his journals. Um, Thursday, June 28th. Spent the morning in reading several parts of the Holy Scripture and in fervent prayer for my Indians that God would set up his kingdom among them and bring them into his church. About nine I withdrew to my usual place of retirement in the woods and there again enjoyed some assistance in prayer. My great concern was for the conversion of the heathen to God. And the Lord helped me to plead with him for it. Towards noon okay <laughs> it's three hours later, towards noon rode up to the Indians in order to preach to them. And while going my heart went up to God in prayer for them, could freely tell God he knew that the cause was not mine, which I was engaged in, but it was his own cause And it would be for his own glory to convert the poor Indians and blessed be God. I felt no desire of their conversion that I might receive the honor from the world as being the instrument of it had some freedom in speaking to the Indians. Saturday, June 30th, two days later, my soul was very solemn in reading God's word, especially the ninth chapter of Daniel, which I referred to earlier. I saw how God had called out his servants to prayer prayer, and made them wrestle with him when he designed to bestow any great mercy on his church. And alas, I was ashamed of myself to think of my dullness and inactivity when there seemed to be so much to do for the upbuilding of Zion. Oh, does how, oh, how does Zion lie waste? It's kind of making an analogy there with the city of Jerusalem. I longed that the church of God might be enlarged, was enabled to pray, I think, in faith. My soul seemed sensibly to confide in God and was enabled to rest, uh, to wrestle with Him. Afterward, I walked afterwards, walked abroad to a place of sweet retirement and enjoyed some assistance in prayer again, had a sense of my great need of divine help and felt my soul sensibly depend on God. Blessed be God. This has been a comfortable week to me. So it's kind of like as soon as he gets done praying, he then goes and prays somewhere. You know, it's really kind of intimidating, if I can be honest with you. It's like, my goodness, you just picture him out in the woods eating the bark of some tree somewhere and drinking some some river water and then going back to pray some more. And then as soon as he's done with that, he goes and preaches to the Indians and maybe leads a few of them to Christ and goes back and pours out his soul in prayer for another 10 hours until he collapses and falls asleep. And then the next day he gets up and has another day just like that one. You know, you're like, wow, um, would I even want a life like that? You know? Maybe not. All right. But you're know, you like, it's like all Jesus all the time, all kingdom work all the time. It's either preaching or it's prayer or it's fasting or it's, you know, and, and, and he senses it just isn't enough. If only he could do more. His heart is cold toward God. Listen to this next one, if you can stand it. Um, But uh, this is the very next day, July 1st in the morning was perplexed with wandering vain thoughts was much grieved, judged, and condemned myself before God, and oh, how miserable did I feel because I could not live to God. At ten, rode away with a heavy heart to preach to my Indians. Upon the road, I attempted to lift up my heart to God, but was infested with an unsettled, wandering frame of mind and was exceeding restless and perplexed and filled with shame and confusion before God. I seemed to myself to be more brutish than any man and thought none deserved to be cast out of God's presence so much as I. If I attempted to lift up my heart to God, as I frequently did, by the way, on a sudden, before I was aware, my thoughts were wandering to the ends of the earth, and my soul was filled with surprise and anxiety to find it thus. Thus also, after I came to the Indians, my mind was confused, and I felt nothing sensibly of that sweet reliance on God that my soul has been comforted with in days past. Spent the afternoon in this posture of mine and preached to the Indians without any heart. In the afternoon, I felt still barren when I began to preach and for about half an hour, I seemed to myself to know nothing and have nothing to say to the Indians. But soon after I found myself found in myself, a spirit of love and warmth and power to address the poor Indians and God helped me to plead with them and to turn from all the vanities of the heathen to the living God. And I am persuaded the Lord touched their consciences for I never saw such a tension raised in them before. And when I came away from them, I spent the whole time while I was riding to my lodgings three miles distant in prayer and praise to God. And after I had rode more than two miles, it came into my mind to dedicate myself to God again, which I did with great solemnity and unspeakable satisfaction, especially gave up myself to him renewed in the work of the ministry. And this I did by divine grace, I hope, without any exception or reserve not in the least shrinking back from any difficulties that might attend this great and blessed work. I seemed to be most free, cheerful and full in, the, in this dedication of myself. My whole soul cried, Lord, to thee I dedicate myself. O oh, accept of me and let me be thine forever. Lord, I desire nothing else. I desire nothing more. Oh, come, come, Lord, accept a poor worm. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. After this was enabled to praise God with my whole soul, that he had enabled me to devote and consecrate all my powers to him in this solemn manner. My heart rejoiced in my particular work as a missionary, rejoiced in my necessity of self-denial in many respects and still continued to give up myself to God and implore mercy of him praying incessantly every moment with sweet fervency. My My nature, being very weak of late and much spent, was now considerably overcome My fingers grew very feeble and somewhat numb, so I could scarcely stretch them out straight. And when I lighted from my horse, could hardly walk. My joints seemed all to be loosed. But I felt abundant strength in the inner man. Preached to the white people. God helped me much, especially in prayer. Sundry of my poor Indians were so moved to come to meeting also. And one appeared much concerned. So that's just just a handful. That's a week in the life right there. And, uh, you know, you look at that and say, wow, um, there's just so much fluff in my life. You know, by comparison, you look at that, there's just so much stuff that doesn't have anything to do with the kingdom. And you look at Brainerd and the sense you get from him is the closer you get, the more you want. And the closer you get, the more humble you are about yourself. It's not a sense of what a great man I am or look at how much time I spent in prayer. Now, again, I think Piper's right to sense a certain melancholy in Brainerd. And I think it might have been, as Piper said, constitutional, a physical issue with him. People do struggle with these kinds of things. But what's the core of all that, isn't it? I'm hungry for you, Lord. I want to serve you. I want to get closer to you. I want to know you. Isn't that Philippians 3? After all Paul's done, he says, It's rubbish. I don't even want to talk about what I've done. I want to know Christ. I want to know Him fully and completely, quickly. And then I want to keep going. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. He wanted to be a pastor and he was kicked out of Yale because he had made a a disparaging comment during the days of the awakening, a disparaging comment about one of his professors saying he had no more grace than that chair over there. And um, it was during a time in which people were preaching about the danger of an unconverted clergy and all that kind of language. And it was, there was a rule that if anyone was heard making those kinds of statements that he would be expelled. And he was expelled. And though he begged and got letters of recommendation to be allowed to continue, he wasn't allowed to. Therefore, he couldn't be a pastor. So he ended up being a missionary to the Indians and lived a very short life, died you know, before he was thirty of consumption. And uh, died very difficultly too. I'll tell you, if you look at how hard it was for him to die, coughing up blood for weeks and, and and it just took an incredible amount of strength to die. You know, and and you look at that and think, here's one of the choicest servants ever in church history. So dedicated to God, and he didn't make it easy for him to die. You know, that's a lesson to all of us. Don't think that the ease with which you exit this world is proportional to God's pleasure of your life and service to him and all that. It has nothing to do with it. He probably was just putting Brainerd on display. And uh, that one of the great understatements of church history, in the midst of all of that misery, you know, wiping blood off his mouth and you know, lamp- lapsing back on the pillow, he says, it's another thing than people supposed to die, different than you think it is. So it's like, wow, (laughs) Lord, get me ready. I really think to some degree that's the test all of us are preparing for so that we can die well to the glory of God. If God gives us time to know that we're dying and to talk to those around us as they see us die, that we would do it to the glory of God. That would be something. All of our little trials prepare us for that final trial that we could give glory to God in that situation. Adoniram Judson, another good example. Uh, He was a faithful man of prayer. I'm not going to read it. Charles Simeon, I'll just say this one thing about Simeon and then... Uh, I just don't have time for all of this. I want to go to some of the practical things. But Simeon, the thing about Simeon is beautiful. He was a single man, a lot like a John Stott, Anglican, you know, um, had a ministry to college students, um, that kind of thing, early 1800s. Um, because he wasn't married, because he was single, he was able to devote himself more fully. To his devotional life, to prayer, to fasting, to other things, and to the ministry, than maybe a married person would be able to do. Uh, Simeon uh, had a tremendous example of of what we would call deep humiliation and glorious exaltation. And Piper used the exam- the the image of one of these great stately tra- uh, sailing vessels, you know, which has these the tall the tall ships, you know, with these masts that go up to the sky, with all of the sail on them, you know, three masts and all the sail. Well, you have to go down into the ocean, the ship has to, the keel, with great weight to handle all that sail. So the analogy he uses if you want to you want this kind of experience of grace and exaltation in your prayer life. Be prepared to be broken and humbled. Think about the Apostle Paul, as we've already looked at, the thorn in the flesh to keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. There was given me a thorn in the flesh. Well, it's the same thing with Simeon. Basically, he has a tremendous sense of abasement and of his humiliation as a sinner and also a great sense of the greatness of the gospel and of God's love for him in Christ and all of that. Just look how, how we, uh, you know, he spent hours and hours a day in prayer. Um, let me see if I can get at this quickly. I don't know. Um, let's talk about humiliation. Uh, he understood that before honor comes humility. Look at page eight. Um, he says, I have had continually, this is the italicized part, um I have had continually such a sense of my sinfulness as would sink me into utter despair if I had not an assured view of the sufficiency and the willingness of Christ to save me to the uttermost. And at the same time, I had such a sense of my acceptance through Christ as would overset my little bark, that means like my little ship, if I had not ballast at the bottom sufficient to sink a vessel of no ordinary size. In other words, God put lots of lead in the bottom of the ship so that I could have a tremendous amount of sail up above. And the lead at the bottom of the ship is, I realize just what a great sinner I am. And the sail up above is, I realize what a great savior he is, that kind of thing. And those are, it's just a healthy balance there. Because bottom line, dear friends, isn't it, isn't it true? I mean, isn't it? Would you really want to stand before before God right now in and of yourself apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ? Really, I mean, are you good enough for that? Have you had a good day? (laughs) How good was it, really? Suppose it has been a good day. I mean, a really good day. Even David Brainerd might like it, all right? And would you even in that good day stand before the holy judgment seat of God? No way. And so as you shake your head, no, in effect, there's your ballast. And the more you really believe the answer is no, that's the humbling. And the more you really believe that yet for all of that, I could stand before him with great confidence because I know that Jesus died for me and that his righteousness has been given to me. And in that I will stand. Those are the sails. That's the exaltation. God loves me. He died for me. So he says this. Listen to this. This is so powerful. I've never forgotten this since the first time that I was introduced by this to uh, Charles Simeon by John Piper's biographical sketch of him. This is what he said. With this sweet hope, of ultimate acceptance with God, I have always enjoyed much cheerfulness before men, but I have at the same time labored incessantly to cultivate the deepest humiliation before God. So in other words, if you just knew him as a person, he's a very happy person. I mean, he's very content. He's easy to talk to. He's not morose. He's joyful and cheerful. But before the Lord, he has this sense of deep humiliation and he's actually cultivated it. Now listen to this. I have never thought... This is a a actually revolutionary sentence. It's almost hard to take in. And frankly, most evangelicals can't handle it. You read this and you're like, I don't believe that. I actually think there's something wrong about it. But the more you meditate on it, the more actually it makes sense. Listen to this. (laughs) I have never thought that the circumstance of God's having forgiven me was any reason why I should forgive myself. On the contrary, I've always judged it better to loathe myself the more in proportion as I was assured that God was pacified toward me. And then we've got Ezekiel 16:63. Well, you really have to read it to see. I remember reading that and saying that is wrong. Well, what's going on here? Well, if you read Ezekiel 16:63, there God speaking to Israel says, when I make atonement for your sin and you see all of the greatness of your sin and of the atonement I've made for it, You will loathe yourself and be ashamed and never open your mouth before me again. Now, you you read that and you that's God speaking to Israel. When I make atonement for your sin, you will be ashamed and never open your mouth before me again. Now, this is the way I understand it. This is necessary while we're still here on earth. You'll leave it behind when you pass judgment day. You don't need it then. But boy, do you need it now. And if you don't know what I mean, then you don't understand this, the indwelling sin and the power of the devil and the world that surrounds us to cultivate within us sinful patterns that will bring us to ruin. If you think, you know, I'm safe, actually, <laughs> fine. I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm in good shape. Things are going well for me. I've been doing well now for weeks. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just ridiculous. We really can't make these kinds of statements. So what he's saying is I'm never going to forget that I'm a great sinner. And that I'm still in danger. And that my sin could be reignited and kindled within my own lifestyle at any moment. And so just because God's forgiven me doesn't mean that I should just say, it's fine, I'm through the woods, I'm out of the woods now. Can we do that? I think we must. We must do both. We must say, God has completely forgiven me. If you you don't say that, then you're just in the old Catholic scheme of trying to earn your salvation by good works. I don't believe that. I believe I am forgiven by my faith in Jesus. Completely forgiven. Would I use his language if I've not forgiven myself? I don't know. But what I would say is I'm not releasing my vigilance concerning these things. I'm still in danger here. Read the verse. Tell me what you think. Not now, but um, Ezekiel 16:63. And by the way, this is a very serious issue. There are some that have questioned this style or this approach of ministry. They, in effect, have said to me and to some of the elders in the church and others, you know, we don't need this. We need to be assured of our forgiveness. We need to be told that we are righteous in God's sight. We need to be promised the joy of walking with Jesus, all these kind of things. Look, friends, that's only half the story. I do say those things. You are forgiven if you're a Christian. You are adopted. You're a child of God. You couldn't be more forgiven than you are. It's all by faith. And you're in great danger, surrounded by enemies. You're in enemy territory. It's the middle of a great war. You've got to put on your spiritual armor. You've got to be vigilant every moment. You can never say, you know, that'll never happen to me again. If any man thinks he stands, you better take heed lest he fall. Get yourself in accountability relationships. Do whatever you need to do to not sin because you're in danger. Would you want only half that message from me? I tell you, you don't want just the one and you don't want just the other. You want both because it's the truth. It's the truth. So... I got it from Simeon, got it even before that from Paul in the New Testament and other places. So, um, Long story short is you should cultivate both in your prayer life. Go after the deepest humiliation plus highest exaltation. How great a savior, how great a sinner you are. That kind of thing. Go after both. Uh, Hudson Taylor, um, what a great man. I'll tell you this. this yeah, he. I read a book when I was in, in college called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. To sum it up you could say, I think one of the ways, what what was his spiritual secret? He was a missionary who went to the inland regions of China and was revolutionary in the whole faith missions movement, Uh, trusting God for everything, all right? Trusting God for everything. And so bottom line is, um, I think it's Hudson Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret could be summed up in this. Um, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. That's one slogan he said, that when you step out in faith to do something that God has told you to do, he's going to give you everything you need to do that. But I actually think in, in the two-volume biography of Taylor that I, that I read by his grandson, I believe, Dr. Howard Taylor, he says that the, the core of it and something he cultivated before he ever left England was he needed to learn how to move men's hearts through God by prayer alone. How to move the hearts of men through God by prayer alone. And you see a lot of this in Mueller too with, with the whole where he wouldn't make any financial needs known. He would just go to God in prayer and let God work on people's hearts. Taylor, Hudson Taylor was looking at basically I think especially three types of people that he was seeking to move, okay? He was seeking to move primarily Chinese unbelievers that they would come to faith in Jesus. That their hearts would be transformed with the gospel. So he'd go to God in prayer for the lost people of China that they would come to faith in Christ. Secondly, he was seeking to move laborers in the Christian churches of England and other places to leave their comfortable lives behind and come join with him in China to do the work of the inland regions. He was trusting God to raise up laborers for the harvest field. So he was asking God to move in people that they would come and work with him in China, laborers. And thirdly, that he would work on the hearts of wealthy and even not so wealthy Christians to support the ministry financially through prayer. Various needs along the way, very much like George Mueller at that point. We have a need for this. This is going on. And just again and again, the money would come in just in time and answer to prayer again and again. So this is Hudson Taylor. It's well worth studying. Okay? Moving on. Sheet number two. Practical issues in prayer. And I just want to touch on all these things lightly. Um, I hope, by the way, those heroes of the faith have been encouraging you, not discouraging. So many others we could study. And frankly, we could have chosen any one of these and gone more deeply. But just to whet your appetite to some of these uh, people that have gone before us. Now, what are some practical issues? How can you approach your personal prayer life? I, I, there are just a lot of things I could say. This is just what God gave me this afternoon. First of all, I just want to talk about the need to have a time of concentrated prayer in your life. Okay, don't substitute the prayer without ceasing kind of prayer for the go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father's unseen kind of prayer. Those are two different things, both of them essential to the healthy prayer life. You need both. can't just have the one or the other, okay? Because if you go into your room and close the door and pray to your Father's unseen for an hour and then get up and don't pray again the rest of the day, big mistake. You know, that's, that's a problem. We need to walk with God throughout the day. But if you think that your prayer during your morning commute is good enough and you don't need to have had an hour of prayer or a time of prayer before that, you know it, they're just two different things. You just can't concentrate as much during that time or ought not to unless God's doing a driving miracle for you, you know, uh, which generally he doesn't. Um, so the point is keep your eyes on the road. Aim high in steering. Okay, use your directional all right? Don't talk on the cell phone. You can't pray while talking on the cell phone and driving anyway. I mean, that ought not to be done. Long story short is, it's just two different kinds of things, isn't it? You know? And could, can you offer up what's known as ejaculatory prayers? Can you do that while driving? I think you can and should many times. As something pops in your mind, say, Lord, bless this or so-and-so. Oh, yeah, I just remembered somebody's their operations this morning. I pray for them that you would... Yes, God will hear that kind of prayer. That's fine. You shouldn't say, I can't pray like that because I'm not giving my full concentration to God in prayer. I think you should. There are examples of it. Like Nehemiah answering the king. You know, he had already fasted and prayed and done all this prayer closet kind of praying, but now the time has come. And so he says, now, Nehemiah, why is your face sad? What's the deal? Come on, out with it. What do you? What's on your mind? I prayed to the Lord and answered the king. That's that's what he says. Pray to the Lord and answered the king. Same time. That wasn't an in-depth prayer. It was, oh, God, help. Now, here we go. You know, <laughs> the Lord knows. But it's a sense of Godwardness and then answering the king. So both of those are important. Um, secondly, consistency. I, I think people ask, how long should I spend in prayer? It's a third point, but just combine them. Um, that's not really the issue, is it? Probably the answer is more than you are. You know, I, I don't, whatever it is, more than you are. I mean, don't you get that sense? If you ask Brainerd, wouldn't he say the same? More, I need more prayer time, you know. Um, if you don't think you need any more time in prayer, you need more than probably anyone else, all right? So, um, you know, there needs to be that upward call, that sense of I want to pray more. I do. I want to open up more of my heart toward prayer and make more room for it. So, but the real issue here, I think, is consistency. Don't miss a day. Make time every day. Start to understand Luther's attitude that the busier I get, the more I need to pray. So those are just some practical aspects. Um, In Jesus' name, amen. I don't mind you closing your prayers with that. I do it too. But let's just remember what it is you're saying. It's similar to Moses' prayer on the mountain. When you're praying in the name of Jesus, what you're doing is you're saying, God... May Jesus' name be held in honor because of this issue that I've just prayed. You know, if you're praying for healing and say in Jesus' name, say, Lord, if it would be to your glory, to the greatness of your name to do this healing, will you, will you do it? That's what it means. And so I would urge that you not do it unless you can think like that. And, and look, if you, if you just do it by road, not a habit, and then, oh yeah, that's right, I was supposed to think more. Don't. I, I'm urging away from a legalistic kind of, this is our Heavenly Father. And he understands and knows that we're not what we should be in prayer. He's already told us that in Romans and many other places. He knows we're not, we don't pray as we should. But I'm just urging you to think about what this phrase means in Jesus' name. Pray for his, for his glory, for his name's sake. Let that be your prayer. Now, I like this, this book from Paul Miller, A Praying Life, that Bob Hatcher's giving out to the uh, deacons. And uh, I just skimmed some of it. I read one of the chapters today. And I like this whole aspect here of keeping a balance in your prayer time, between the Word of God, intake with the Word of God, and hearing God speak by means of that, and then the Spirit, and having a sense of the Spirit's direct communication with you, the personal aspect versus the unchanging, timeless Word of God aspect, how if you go too far one way or the other, you're going to run into problems. You're going to run into a kind of a, a rote uh, obedience, perhaps even a legalist legalism if you're just a word-only person, and you don't have the sense that Jesus is speaking this word to you. That, that really this is the Lord's message to me, or the Holy Spirit is speaking to me. Like the author of Hebrews gives us in, in Hebrews chapter 3. Um, so as the Holy Spirit says... Today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts. That's a quote of Psalm 95 and what the author of Hebrews is saying there is the Holy Spirit speaking that to us right now. He's saying this to us. Today if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as they did back in the at the waters of Meribah and all that. So you feel like God is saying this to me. Saying what? This scripture. That's the middle road, okay? To go too far the other way is dangerous too, where you're not really reading the Word. It's just, uh, you know, the Spirit, a sense of the Spirit, of the personal side. Friends, cults start from that. And and there's, there's some, some call it charismatic excesses or whatever. I don't want to put it, but you know what I mean, where somebody's all about what the Spirit has told them and how the Spirit's leading, but it's not rooted in the Word enough. The middle road is best, and that is just combining both. The Holy Spirit is speaking to me intimately and personally by means of the Scripture. Does He say more than the Scripture? I think He does. But I just hold that lower than the Scripture, He says. You know, I just do. I I, I get more out of today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart, than I do, I have a sense from the Spirit that I should go to the hospital today and visit so-and-so, even though I visited Him yesterday. Usually I wouldn't go two days in a row. I just feel like I should go again today. Why do you feel that? I just think the Lord wants me to. All right, Is that equal to today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart? No, it isn't. That's written scripture. All right, But I do feel he wants me to go. And guess what? I'm going to go. <laughs> you know, I'm actually going to get in the car and I'm going to go. Why are you going? Because I feel the Lord is leading me to go. Are you sure about that? No. <laughs> no, but sure enough to get in the car and turn on the ignition and go enough for me. And I think the Lord knows that. And I think he does lead a sheep by that. And I think it's honoring and glorifying to God to follow those kinds of promptings. But I think it's helpful and healthy, in my own opinion, to say, I felt the Lord leading, not God told me to X, Y, and Z in a prophetic sort of sense, making it, and this is the danger, equal to the written word of God. Because eventually, once you start doing that, after a while, the word of God starts to shrink and the personal revelations become stronger than anything else. Be very careful about that. I'm urging with Paul Miller here, seek both in your prayer life. Word and spirit together, a sense of personal uh, combination. A prayer list. Do you have a prayer list? You know, some use them and some don't. Okay? I use the church's phone directory. Okay? Okay? And the uh, elders do that too. And we just go through it in a systematic orderly way and pray for the people. There's just something about seeing that name and address and phone number and email or whatever it is. And you just pray for people like that. I also use Keegan Callanan's missionary prayer thing and and the one that we get from our Bible for Life class and just pray for those things. And what Paul Miller says is when he does a prayer seminar, he's amazed how he asks the number of people that use some kind of organized calendar for their daily lives, either electronic or paper. 95% will say they do. All right, how many do the same for their prayer life? 5%, okay? And he he gets, he elicits reasons why. And it's interesting what's said here. Um, Answers that some people give, well, if you forget an appointment, you know, you pay for it. Like, let's say you forgot that you're supposed to meet someone for lunch. And well, the implication is, yeah, but if you forget to pray, then no big deal. You don't pay for it. It's not that big a deal. It's not that big an issue, Right. Uh, another uh, response is our calendar involves people. That's why we write it down. And he says, "What well, prayer doesn't involve people. What he's saying is write it down. Have some kind of prayer list. He, he makes a case that he thinks the Apostle Paul had a prayer list. When he says to the Colossians or the Thessalonians or the Romans, I always remember you in my prayers and all my prayers for you, blah, blah, blah. He probably has a list of the people he's praying for and remembers them by name. Let's keep in mind also that, you know, though you can spend hours in prayer. I think just one line of prayer for somebody is effective. I don't think we have to be praying for an hour for each person. You know, I don't think Paul could have done that for all of the people he knew in all these churches he planted. You know, look how Jesus prayed before raising Lazarus from the dead, right? Or Elijah before the fire comes down. Those are pretty short, simple prayers. Father, you already know what needs to happen. Do it. <laughs> you know that kind of thing. It doesn't. It doesn't take much. Now, if you're led to pray for an hour for one person, certainly there's enough to do it. But I think organization. So use email prayer lists, uh, that kind of thing, church directory, prayer cards. Paul Miller suggests that. Mark Dever used to use uh, these three by five cards with people's photos on them. And you actually have a photo. He has a photo. And you can do that even better now with the digital camera age. And you just get digital photos of of your people. What I did at one point in my prayer life earlier, I don't do it now, but I probably might go back to it. Um, is to have a prayer calendar um, in which I pray for some people every day, some people once a week, and some people once a month. All right? You, you might say, well, shouldn't you pray for everybody every day? I don't know that you necessarily need to. You don't anyway. Do you pray for everybody you know every day? You don't need to confess one way or the other, but probably not. Um, so might as well just acknowledge that and say that there are different. I have different levels of responsibility based on how close they are to me. And so if it's my wife or my children, etc., my mother who doesn't know the Lord, if it's people like that, I'm going to pray daily and more than that, actually. If it's, you know, out from there, concentric circles. I think you can organize your prayer life in that kind of way. I think it's helpful. Prayer journals, very good. I haven't always kept them. Sometimes I do and sometimes I do. It's like a checkbook, you know, where you write down uh, a date and a name and what you prayed for. You know, George Mueller puts us all to shame in that regard. He just had 50,000 answers to prayer that he kept. But I'm always encouraged when I do it, always. I'm always amazed. And the ones that encourage me the most are the ones that don't get answered for a long time and I forget about. And I, I didn't even keep up with that particular prayer journal. And you find it seven years later and go back and look at all the gaps, the ones that haven't been answered yet, and you're amazed at how many, how God actually disposed of those things. I never forgot how God spoke to Zechariah remember Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, and his wife Elizabeth was barren beyond childbearing years. It's over. All of that. And the angel Gabriel comes and says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth is going to have a child. Like what prayer was that? Well, didn't you pray that your wife would have have a child? Well, yeah, but it's It's been a while. (laughs) You really think he prayed that that morning? Do you think Zechariah got up and said, Oh, Lord, I know she's barren and beyond her years, but I just keep on... I doubt it. I mean, given his reaction, you remember his reaction? I don't believe it. Well, he didn't say that, but I mean, that's a fact what, what happened, isn't it? He didn't believe it. And so God struck him dead. So if he didn't believe it when an angel came and told him, do you think he prayed for it that morning? Just conjecture, but I'm thinking not. But what's the point? God heard your prayer. Which one? The one you prayed 17 years ago? That one? And all the days before that? I heard your prayer. Now I'm gonna answer it. Boy, I tell you, I never forgot that and I said, You know, God God never forgets. And we ought to yes, Adrian. What a, a miraculous type heater like I was probably praying for, like oh, yeah. it's gonna fall out of the sky over what he able to see. did it. Did it. Mm-hmm. the way he wanted to do it, not to pick it up. Amen. And well I praise God, God for that. For that. Praise God for that. I, I just I just personally want to grow in prayer. I want to trust God for more. Uh, let me say a few more things and then I'll be done. Some people suggest various patterns of prayer, like the axe model, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I've used it on and off different times. I like what um, Miller says, watch out for systems. I like this and we'll close with it. Systems can become rote, rote desensitizing us to God as a person. We can become wooden or mindless as we pray. I love this. When I come home, I don't first adore Jill for a couple of minutes, confess my failure to take out the trash, thank her for making dinner, and then give her my list. (laughs) Jill is a Philadelphian. Philadelphians boo their own sports teams. I could probably have an axe conversation entrance once. Then Jill would probably roll her eyes and ask if I had a touch of autism. And rightly so. When you're autistic, you have trouble picking up social cues from the other person. You are so lost in your own world that you miss... Uh, people, None of us wants to be treated like robots, including God. He is, after all, a person. So what he's saying is don't become machine-like in your prayer life. But having said that, then he goes on a little further. He says, many people, however, are so aware of this caution that they're suspicious of all systems. They feel it kills the spirit. Systems seem to fly in the face of what we learned about childlike praying. But all of us create systems with things that are important to us. Remember, life is both holding hands and scrubbing floors. That's a theme earlier in the book. It's uh, both being and doing. Prayer journals and prayer cards are, are on the scrubbing floor side of life. Praying like a child is on the holding hand side of life. We need both. So there is some call for organization of your prayer life. We forget things. We you know, we need to be organized. I've given you, I went through the Lord's Prayer as a model. You can, you can do some things with that. I've given you some other helps at the back that might be of some benefit uh, to you. Let's close if we would in prayer. Tim, can I ask you to do that? Tim, right? thank you.